Why did I show this, this little video clip? What was going on? Here you got this fellow and there's a little guy inside, inside his brain, manipulating him. And what I'm going to talk about tonight is that most of us, not all the time, but a good deal of the time, actually have little men and women in our brains manipulating us. And we don't even think about it. Someone hurt you, someone criticized you, and how do you feel? You feel what? Hurt, maybe upset, angry. Why? Because you're letting them get inside your head and determine how you're going to feel. So you're no different than what we saw in this little video clip with this, with this movie here, that we are letting other people, and that's why the title of my last message tonight, Let Others Into Your Head. Most of our problems occur because we are letting other people into our head. And it's back to the basis of what we've been talking about in this series, which is personal responsibility, taking responsibility for our own lives, our own feelings, our own emotions, not putting the blame on anyone else, because if we do, then we're no longer in control. We're at the mercy of anyone else around, and if that's the case, you're helpless, you're a victim, and I just feel sorry for you and sad for you, because there's no solution. Because as long as you're waiting for someone else to solve your problem, they don't have your best interest at heart. They're not out saying, I'm going to see how happy I can make you. They've got their own problems and issues that they are wrestling with um, as well. And one of the, the, the key examples here, and the brethren will get to it, um, pretty, it takes, this is an old computer, it takes a while to boot up. You, you We're see? Okay, all right. Um, and you can get the presentation up, and I'll just carry on. You remember the story of David and Saul, and we already talked about one aspect in a previous one. But Saul has uh, taken David into his army, he's made him one of his generals, he sent him out on wars, and David is so successful, so victorious, that he comes back from one of his campaigns, and um, as he's returning, the women come out from all the towns of Israel, and with their tambourines, and they began to sing. And you remember what they sing? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. All right, and how does Saul react? The Bible says there in Samuel that Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. He said they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me, with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? In 1 Samuel 18, verse 9, it says, And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now, what was going on here? He was letting the women of Israel get into his head. Or to use a colloquial expression, they were getting under his skin. You ever have people that get under your skin? And so he felt an angry, upset that the women were giving more credit to David than to himself. And as a result, he started to become paranoid. And for most of his reign, he spent his time trying to hunt David down, thinking that David was trying to take over his kingdom, which was not the case at all. David was not the slightest interested in taking the throne away from, uh, from him. And the only way that he knew how to cope, if you read the rest of the passage, he started to hire musicians to come and calm him down, and eventually, David was one of those musicians as well. It's kind of ironic 
that the musician who was to come and was also the person who irritated him at, uh, at, at different times. And while Gary's getting this up and he's doing a great job, did you find it? Okay, oh, it's right over there. I want to use a little illustration here. I don't run this thing over. I've got two empty bottles. They are identical, all right? Now I have here some milk and I have here some rat poison, all right? Now, I have a choice, all right? I can take this milk, let's take the, t the tops off here, and I can choose which one of these, it's empty, nothing in it, which one I'm going to pour, well, I guess I've got to take the top off this one too. So as I pour the milk in, I get milk into this, into this bottle, and I won't pour it all the way. Now I've got another empty bottle, and I can either pour milk into that, or I can pour the rat poison into it. By the way, it's not really rat poison, it's postum, but um, <laughs> I borrowed some from Marin. I just had to make it look nasty, you see, and black and so on. But rat poison will, will kill you. So I had to tell my church this when I used this illustration, because they were afraid some kid was going to come up and drink it or something, and I said, no, it, it won't ha harm them. I'm doing a little spilling here, but that's all right. Now, why am I doing this illustration? These bottles represent your mind. They're empty, they're open. Someone comes along with a positive thought or a negative one. You have the choice which one you're going to fill your brain with. You have the choice which one you're going to meditate. Now, you can't stop people saying critical things. You can't stop people being unfair towards you. You can't do that. But you can decide whether what they've said stays in your mind or goes out of your mind. And so you choose whether you're going to let people fill your brain with milk or whether you're going to fill your brain with rat poison. And when we let them fill it with rat poison, we get depressed, we get sad, we get unhappy, we get angry, we get hateful. All kinds of things start to happen because we have chosen to allow other people determine what we are going to think when we have the choice all the time to fill our mind with positive things, with good milk. And most people don't even think about that and realize about that. And what I'm talking about is very simple to say, but it's another thing, as you know, to carry out in, um, in practice. Now, the women sing their song. What choice did Saul have? You know, he could have picked up the jar of hope. Thank you. He could have picked up the jar of milk. He could have picked up the jar of being positive. What could he have said instead of saying, David's after my throne? Well, he could have said, I'm a smart guy for picking such a great general. You know, I'm privileged to have someone that the people love so much that will, that will support. I'm a better administrator. I'm glad that I'm on the throne. I can administer the kingdom and have more time dealing with that while David's out fighting and killing my enemies for me. There were all kinds of things he could have said and thought that would be positive, that would help him, but instead he chose to put rat poison into his brain. He chose to let what the women say, say get to him, and as a result, it turned him into depression, and eventually he committed suicide at the end of his reign when he was wounded by the by the Philistines. And I want to share a very, let me zip through here. All right, look at this statement. 
Conflicts are feelings and thoughts that in, exist inside persons, not outside them. When you say, I'm in conflict with someone, that is not true. You're not in conflict with someone. You're in conflict with yourself. You have chosen to be in. No one can be in conflict with you unless you choose to let them. At its very basis, conflicts and issues are what's going on inside you because of how you have chosen to think. What you have chosen to fill your mind with out of the choice of all the millions of messages that are going around. And it's that tension inside that causes your insecurity, my problems and issues, and whatever they might be. And so King Saul had let the women get into his head so much that he could no longer function on a rational basis in his kingdom. He had let them determine his agenda. He had let them determine the future of his life. And how many of us sitting in this room can think back where we've let people set the agenda for us, how we feel, how we think, where we're going, and we blame them for it, and we haven't stopped to think, hey, we don't have to let them into our head if we don't want to, and we can shut them out if we want to. And we're going to spend some time looking at how to, to do that. And that's back to the theme, as you see up in the right-hand corner, of being a thermostat, rather than a thermometer. Being in control of the environment instead of letting the environment control you. I've heard some of the following over and over again. I wasn't given enough money to do the job right. I don't have enough authority to accomplish what I've been asked to do. My husband doesn't tell me when he's coming home late. My child is acting up in school. I've done everything I can and he's still in trouble. No one will be my friend. The church never called when I was sick, and I haven't been back since. My boss puts me down, and the list is endless. And what am I hearing, and what are you hearing? We're putting the responsibility on someone else. We're putting the issues on someone else, rather than taking the responsibilities ourselves. And that's what Saul did. He let the women get into his head. He let David get into his head. And he needn't have allowed that at all. So how do we choose the right bottle? How do we decide we're going to let our minds be full of milk instead of rat poison? Because rat poison will kill you. And critical thoughts will kill you. They'll kill you emotionally. They'll affect your physical health. It's amazing um, how many of us get ulcers because of how we think. We get back pain because of how we think. All of us are different because our bodies react differently. Some of us get constipated when we're under tension and stress. Some of us get arthritis. Each of us has different symptoms in our body that warns us when we're not dealing successfully with life and the issues um, around us. Jesus tells a very interesting story. It's only found in the Gospel of Luke. And he says, when a corrupting spirit is expelled from someone, it drifts along through the desert looking for an oasis some unsuspecting soul, it can be devil. This is the message Bible, Eugene Peterson. <coughs> when it doesn't find anyone, it says, I'll go back to my old haunt. On return, it finds the person swept and dusted, but vacant. Back to our illustration at the beginning, men in black of the mind. It then runs out and rounds up seven other spirits, spirits dirtier than itself, and they all move in, whooping it up, and that person ends up far worse than if he'd never got cleaned up in the first place. 
Luke 11:24. <coughs> I don't know how many of you remember reading that story in the Bible. It's a wonderful story to illustrate what we're talking about tonight. What was the problem with it? He did a good thing to begin with, all right? He got rid of the evil spirit. He cleaned out his mind, but he didn't do what? He didn't put something else back that was good. So it's not enough to think, oh, I'm not going to let them hurt me. I'm not going to get upset about it. Because the more you say that, the more that you are. It reminds me of a great story in India when Indian Faker, F-A-K-I-R, was visiting a village and showing them how, if they knew certain spells, they could make gold out of, out of rocks. And the, the village chief um, said, how much for me to get that formula? And he said, this is how much it's going to cost you. And so he willingly paid for it. And as the faker left, he said, by the way, he said, the gold will never come as long as you keep thinking about the red-faced monkey on your shoulder. And the poor chief, as hard as he could, tried not to think about the red-faced monkey the more he thought about it, and the gold never came. Faker was very cunning, wasn't he, to cover, cover his tracks in that way. So it's not just enough to empty our mind. We've got to fill it with, um, with, with something else. Let me paraphrase what Jesus is saying. When a person empties his or her mind of negative thinking, the negative thoughts rush out trying to find someone else to fill. The person in the meantime has expelled the negative thoughts but does not replace them with a system of positive thoughts. So when the negative thoughts come back and inspects the clean quarters left in the brain and seeing how empty everything is, it invites seven additional negative thoughts to come with it and re-enter that brain. If you have Ministry of Healing, just remember the chapter in Contact with Others. It's around page 470. It's the finest uh, piece of writing I've ever seen anywhere, and I've read lots of books on interpersonal relationships. And I just want to quote one little section from it. Ellen White says, Cultivate the habit of speaking well... Oh, I've got it here. Cultivate the habit of speaking well of others. Dwell upon the good qualities, there we have the positive, of those with whom you associate, and see as little as possible of their errors and failings. When tempted to complain of what someone has said or done, praise something in that person's life or character. Now that's something we don't usually do. But what a wonderful principle that is. Cultivate thankfulness. Praise God for his wonderful love in giving Christ to die for us. It never pays to think of our grievances. God calls upon us to think of his mercy and his matchless love that we may be inspired with praise. So if you have someone you're having difficulty with, start drawing up a list of all the positive qualities of that individual. I was pastoring a church um, one time, and one of my deacons came to me and wanted to know why he didn't have too many friends in the church. And I knew why, because he was a pretty critical guy. So I said, um, uh, Give me some examples, some people you'd like to you know, be friends with and have difficulty with. So he gave me a family. And I said, um, tell me something about that, uh, that individual, something positive. He said, um, I don't know them well enough to say anything positive. I knew him well enough and what he'd said to me in the past that he told me a number of critical things about them. And so I said, you know them well enough to know negative things because you told me about them. 
So if you know some negative things about them, you've got to know some positive things. So I want you to tell me at least one positive thing about that person. And he was a great Ellen White devotee. So I pulled Ministry of Healing off his um, shelf and read this quotation that you're just seeing up on the screen. Well, it was, I felt like I was the dentist pulling wisdom teeth. He hummed and hard, and finally he said, well, he's a good father. Actually, I didn't think he was a good father at all, knowing that family too, but I wasn't going to, I said, that's great, that's wonderful. <laughs> I said, tell me another good thing about him. So he struggled and struggled, and finally gave me another good thing, and I said, if you keep doing that, and you keep looking for the good, you'll find that you're going to start to have friends, because people don't like to be around critical people. They don't like to be around negative people. But I said, you've got to make the change. And you do that by changing your thinking from the negative, the rat poison, to the milk, the positive poison. And as you do that, you will find that you will change and your spirit will change in your relationship to others. Now, in that same church, uh, I was learning this from my own experience. Uh, I had an elder and his wife that were pretty negative people. In fact, uh, the wife got up in Sabbath school one time, she was Sabbath school superintendent, and told all the people they could not eat any cheese, they could not eat any eggs, they could not eat any milk. It was bad for them, and we were in the end time events, and Ellen White said that we should not be eating any of that, and if we were, then we were sinners, and on and on she went. I was just flabbergasted, and afterwards I told her, I said, don't ever say those kinds of things in this church again while I'm, while I'm here because uh, people were cringing, you know, and I, certainly with any visitors, they'd never come back. Uh, so I, I had great difficulty loving this woman and her husband. She was the youth leader in Sabbath school, and she'd sit there every Sabbath in class with no one coming, because she'd driven them all away by her critical spirit. She would faithfully prepare. She'd sit there in the classroom, there in the church. No teenagers, no audience, nothing. And so I was having great difficulty. One day I was having my devotions and um, I read this passage and I also read in Steps to Christ, the last chapter, Rejoicing in the Lord, is a great chapter. Go and read that over and over again where Ellen White says, you cannot love other people as God loves them if you're thinking of the unkind and unjust things that they are saying and doing. And I thought, that's it. That's all I'm thinking about this couple. I'm thinking about, you know, they're legalists, you know, they, they um, have... have sent the kids, the teenagers away from the church. And I said, I got to start practicing these principles myself. So I thought, well, what's positive about this couple? Well, I could count on them opening up the church. I could count on them closing up the church. Anything I asked them to do about the church, they would do faithfully. They actually ran quite a good vacation Bible school. And uh, so I started thinking about these positive things that this couple had and I discovered, because they knew that we didn't have a good relationship, because people can sense how you feel towards them. And so as I began to put these positive thoughts into my mind, the milk instead of the negative, my spirit changed. My attitude changed. Now, I can never say we became bosom friends and buddies, but I no longer thought of them in the negative light that I saw before. And they started to mellow. They started to change. So the thermostat principle works if you work on yourself first. You can actually change other people, but it only, you can only change them when you first change yourself. And as your attitude changes and your thinking changes, people will start to respond to it. I, since I've learned these principles, I try and practice them all the time. I love when I'm shopping and going to stores, looking at the checkout clerk. 
and they all vary. Some are somber, some are negative, some are very cheery. And I just love trying to cheer them up. And especially the more negative or sour they are, I just try and find ways to thank them and to bless them and smile at them. And they have a little tag, and I call them by, by, by their name. And one time I was in, in a Safeway store, and I was in the line that says 10 items or less. And nothing irritates me more than to see people with more than 10 items in that line, and the checkers putting them through. So there was a person in front of me with 15 items. And I thought, oh, no. And the, and the girl at the checkout started ringing them up, and she got to number 10. She said, sir, the sign says 10. That's all I can do. You're going to have to take the five to another checkout counter. <laughs> Whoa. I thought, this is great. <laughs> and she insisted. And this paid for the 10 and had to go somewhere else. So when I came through, I thanked her and I praised her. And then when I got back to my office, I wrote a letter to the manager of the store. And I got her name and, and praised her. To, I don't know what happened, you know, what he did with after that. But I said, this is so unusual that I, I just felt so, so wonderful that she was willing to. So I thought, I will make her day and, and try and help her with, her with her manager. Now, I've not always been that way. And I still mess up at times. Early in my, my career, when I was pastoring in Scotland, I had the conference stewardship a person come to our church and meet with the church board because we had a very antiquated system. We took up a separate offering for everything. We didn't have church budget like you have here. Uh, so utilities, we took up a budget for that. If we needed an, on, so sometimes we'd take up four offerings uh, on, a, on a Sabbath. And uh, it was a, you know, I thought systematic benevolence, church budget is the way to go. So he came up, and most other Adventist churches were on this, but this little church I had up in Creef, Scotland, was not that way. So he made his presentation to the church board, very nice, showed all the positives. We took the vote, and they voted no. Don't want it. We're happy the way that we are. So I got really upset. So my sermon the next Sabbath actually had this title, when the church board voted 10 to 2 against God. <laughs> I can be a pretty strong individual, and my... You don't believe it, but I did. You know, I look back, I said, oh, man, how could I ever said so? And my text was the 12 spies who searched, out the pro <laughs> who searched out the promised land, and 10 came back with an evil report, and two had, uh, had a positive report. And I preached that sermon to my church. Well, God's Spirit smote me after that. And the next Sabbath, I got up and apologized and said, I'm very sorry for what I said last Sabbath. That was not right. That was not Christian. You know, would you forgive me? And they were very gracious. And, uh, and, and, and they forgave me. So I understand fully, I'm human just like you guys are, of how people can get under your skin and get your goat and how you can react and say and do things that, uh, that are not, uh, not best. And so I've tried to follow this principle that Paul talked about to the church in Philippi. He says, now, brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. Sorry, it's a New Living Translation, not, not Peterson's one. But notice what Paul is saying. Fix your thoughts where? What is right and beautiful and wonderful and honorable 
and yet so often we fix our thoughts where? What he said, what she said, what he did, what this happened here. And as a result, those thoughts determine how we feel. Feelings come from our thoughts. Our feelings do not generate our thoughts. Feelings come as a result of how we are, are thinking. And that's why when you go to a counselor, the counselor has to spend so much time trying to help you think differently in understanding what God is wanting in your, in, in your life. Now, here's a question I often ask people, because people say, yeah, but you know, there's this situation, and I've got this family situation. So the question I often ask when couples come to me, and I only do short-term counseling because I'm not a, a professional counselor, one of the questions I ask is, how perfect do you want your spouse to be? How perfect do you want the church to be? How perfect do you want your boss to be? Because the interesting thing is, without stating it, our expectations are that you're going to be perfect. And that started in Eden. When God created Adam and Eve, he created perfect people, perfect relationships, perfect environment. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, there's remained a residue in every human being since, and we long for perfection, don't we? We'd like everything to be right. We'd like to have harmony. We don't like fights. We don't like conflicts. We don't like issues and so on. We want to be back in Eden. But we're not in Eden. We're in an imperfect world. And the difficulty is that while I'm wanting you to be perfect, I'm content not to be not so perfect. And I want you to accept me as I am, but I'm reluctant to accept you as you are. So I come back to the question, how perfect do you want the other person to be? We've got to learn to live with each other's faults because we all have them. So instead of making them the issue, instead of filling our minds with them, say, okay, I'm going to put milk instead. I'm going to find something good about that person. I'm going to find something positive to fill my mind um, in instead. Peter, in talking to the church, said, above all, love each other deeply because what? Love covers a multitude of sins. That's a text that many Adventists hate. Because, that's right, no, there's a segment of us, and I'm not being critical, who believe we've got to become sinless before the close of probation. No longer sinning, no longer any imperfections um, in us. So this kind of a text is terrible, because we're not supposed to be covering over sin. We're supposed to be getting rid of sin. And what's Peter talking about? He's not saying it's all right to sin. What he's saying is don't make other people's sins your focus. Don't make your life the purpose of setting other people straight. <coughs> Overlook that. Because if you love them, because that's what God does to us. When he loves us, as you saw this morning, the blood of Jesus comes and covers, and he doesn't see our sins anymore because of his love and his grace. So if God is doing that for us, he wants us to do that towards each other. And what's interesting, if you look at verse 7, it's actually an eschatological text, an end-time text, because Peter starts off by saying, the end of all things is near. So if he thought it was near in the first century, think how near it is now. And if it was important then to love each other deeply, it's even more important that we love each other deeply today. And love covers a multitude of, of sins. Ellen White says, so long as we're in this world, we're going to meet with adverse influences. There'll be provocations to test the temper, and it is by meeting these in a right spirit that the Christian graces are developed. If Christ dwells in us, we shall be patient, kind, and forbearing, 
cheerful amid frets and irritations. Day by day and year by year we shall conquer self and grow into a noble heroism. This is our allotted task, but it cannot be accomplished <coughs> without help from Jesus, resolute decision, unwavering purpose, continual watchfulness, and unceasing prayer. Each one of us in this room has a personal battle to fight. Not even God can make our characters noble or our lives useful unless we become co-workers with him. Those who decline the struggle lose the strength and joy of victory. While justification is the work of a moment, and while there's nothing we can do to earn God's grace, sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And developing the character of Christ takes effort and work and prayer and study and growing and learning, which is what God wants us to do because he wants us to become more like Jesus in his image more and more. And one of the chief ways to change our thinking, not only is to think positive thoughts about someone else, but invest yourself in helping them, in helping others. It may be someone at work, it may be a neighbor, a church, Invest in making a difference in someone's life so you can be an irresistible um, influence. I was sharing with Gary and, uh, and uh, Marilyn and some others, uh, you're supposed to witness to your neighbors. And I was saying, we can't witness to the neighbors on our street because they don't like us at all. Uh, when we first came to, uh, we've been there two years, uh, we like to visit our immediate neighbors, get acquainted. And the street behind us, there was a house right behind, and so we got went, knocked on their door, they invited us in, and after a while they told us that they had a problem with our house. And the previous owner was in their 90s, and so they never said anything, but now we, we were there, they wanted us to fix the problem. The problem was all the water from our land ran down into their garden and washed their stuff away. See, their house is here on the hill, and our house is up here. Now, when water runs, which way does it go? It goes downhill. So I was kind of surprised and thought, well, you know, you bought this house down. Where do you think the water's going to go? You know, it's got to go somewhere. So they want, I, I don't know how they expected this dry wells or whatever, or stop it raining on our property or, you know, uh, or, or whatever. So we thanked them and said we would, you know, do our best. And then we were renovating our, the basement and we put a light on the back door where there hadn't been one before. And we got a phone call from the lady saying that that light was annoying them. They were about 300 yards from our house back through the trees, and it was shining in their bedroom window and keeping them awake at night. And that was a security light that we had on that back door. And so my wife said, well, why don't you have some blinds you can pull and curtains? And here's an excellent illustration of not taking responsibility. Oh, no, we have a contemporary house and contemporary windows and blinds and, and curtains don't uh, fit these windows and we can't put them there. So you're responsible for our problem because your light is shining in, in, in our window. So we, we put in um, one of these um, switches, motion detectors, so it would be off in the night and anyone coming by it would just come on and it just wouldn't be on um, all, all the time. Then we wanted to put an extension on our house and file for the permit and so on, and lo and behold, they sued us, or they sued the county for error in granting us a permit to, you know, to put this extension on. It took six months to resolve. Their lawyer, my wife was at the hearing. Their lawyer was presenting the case, and after 10 minutes, the president of the review board said, do you have anything to say that's germane to the case, young man? Well, I guess not. Well, then, 
ended and they gave us judgment. They had absolutely no evidence to back up, just delaying tactics. So um, we wanted to be kind to these neighbors, so uh, we took some fruit and left some stuff at their door. And one day after this, at Christmas time, we got a card in our mailbox from them, a very nice card saying peace. And we thought, and we, we hadn't had any more negative actions from them since on that. But another neighbor down the street, we were trying to do some nice things, and they sent us a card that said, don't give us any more chocolates, don't give us any more flowers, don't give us, we don't want any more nice things from you at all, please stop this. And uh, it's hard to witness to neighbors like that, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 be, and be loving. And um, anyway, trying to help others can be a challenge sometimes, but it orients our thinking, it orients our thoughts in the right direction, when instead of thinking ourselves, when in thinking of being a victim, I'm going to change someone else's life or help someone else. Dr. Robert Quinn, who's a professor of business management at the University of, of Michigan Business School, tells about his wife, Delsa, who went to volunteer in, um, in a church for the 11-year-old class of, of girls and they had them divided up into girls and boys. She was already very busy raising six children of her own, but she felt she needed to volunteer and help at that church. She made a beautiful cake for one of the girls in her class who was having a birthday. Just put all kind of, you know, iced it just the right way, put her name on it. This girl was so excited. And then the other girls in the class said, Teacher, are you gonna make a cake for me on my birthday? And she said, sure, I'll do that. So each time the birthday came from one of the other kids, she would make a special cake for them. She invested many hours in her lesson preparation to find just the right object lessons, the right illustrations for, for their level, to interact with them, and to have an interesting class um, uh, for them. She, init she initiated service projects. She'd call the girls on the phone and really worked hard to build relationships with them. And over time, each of the girl's parents contacted Delsa and thanked her for all she had done because virtually every girl had changed in some way or another. Some thanked Delsa because their daughters had changed their attitude towards the church. Others told stories of how the girls were changing individually. Some were becoming more disciplined, some more sensitive, others were open to taking direction. The girls had, men, had, had many teachers but there was something about Delsa that was different from all the other teachers. She was a transformational teacher, a transformational agent. She had inspired the girls to change because of the way she had modeled, the way she had loved them, the way that she had cared for them. After the girls graduated from Delsa's class, they kept in touch with her. When they went to college, they kept in touch. They'd come and visit her during school break. There seemed to be a permanent bond between her and these girls. But this is not the most remarkable part of this story. Delsa said, and I quote what uh, Dr. Quinn, her husband, wrote in the book. She said, when I first started teaching the girls, I was not nat naturally drawn to each one. But that did not last long. Since I saw it as my duty to serve them, I did. So here she was, it was a duty. She had volunteered, needed to be done, and she was doing it more as a duty than a service of love. And as I started to make sacrifices to serve those girls, I started to see them differently. 
I started to see beyond their weaknesses, beyond the faults, beyond the poison and so on, which we all have. I started to see their potential. Now, there's an important principle. If everyone you come into contact, instead of looking at their weaknesses, what's their potential? What can they become? How can I encourage them? How can I be a transformational agent for that person? I started to see beyond their weaknesses. I started to see their potential. The more sacrifices I made in their behalf, the more I wanted them to grow. Pretty soon, preparing the lessons, making the cakes, and designing the service projects were not a sacrifice. They were a joy. You see, when we serve others, it can be, well, I need to do it because that's what good Christians do. Or I can do it because I love Jesus and I want to be a transformational person. And it's a joy to serve others because Jesus served me. The more the girls felt my joy and concern, the more they were willing to try new things. The more new activities we tried, the more we could think of trying. One good thing seemed to produce another. Notice, I started to see beyond their weaknesses, I began to look at their potential. Men in black, others in your head, we can be transformational agents because we have the choice of whether we're going to let milk come into our minds or poison into our minds. No one can control your thinking. No one can determine how you feel unless you allow them to. And the way we prevent them is by thinking those positive thoughts, doing service projects for these people, seeing how we can bless those we might have difficulty with, and spending lots of hours at the foot of the cross with Jesus. Because we can't do that in our own strength. It's not our natural inclination to do it. We need supernatural help. And God has promised all of that help um, for us. That's why spending time with Jesus is so important. And as you spend time with Jesus, there's, um, have I got that text here? Yes. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. I love that word, lavish. Isn't that a rich word? I'm not a bathtub guy. I'm a shower guy. All right? You know what that is? My wife's a bathtub. She never uses the shower hardly. But every then, I'll take a bath. And what I like about the bath is I get it nice and hot, and I just lean back in there, and I just soak in that water. And it just feels so warm and so refreshing. And so I just kind of let that water lavish all over my body. (laughs) And that's what John is talking about here. Just let the, the love of God just overflow you, soak you, warm you, just lavish all over you. And as you as you do that, you'll start to draw closer to him. He will inspire you more to be the kind of person that he wants you to be. Because if we're his children, then he wants us to live as his children, right? And if we're children of the almighty king and the creator of the universe, we have unlimited power to change us in order to be change others. Instead of letting others into our head, we let God into our head. We become the agents that God wants us to be. And just think of the joy and satisfaction that comes, that instead of letting others change you, you become the one that changes others because you are changing yourself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Thank you so much that you love us. Thank you so much that you've given us all that we need in Scripture and in Jesus Christ. And as we leave tonight and as we go home tomorrow, may at least one thing from these meetings stick in our minds that we go home determined to live as your children, your sons and daughters, to your glory and all your powers available to us. I thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.